um, people hark back to the early days of the church and think, oh, if only we were like them, if only we were like the New Testament church. Well, here was a New Testament church, and it was a big mess. In fact, what we're going to find um, when Penny reads that first little bit to us, um, what does he say? Verse 17. We've got a, a, a sneak preview there, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Um, maybe some of you have come today and thought, with all these people away and uh, such a depleted team, uh, maybe our meeting's doing more harm than good. Well, there, it wasn't just for admin reasons. It was for much worse reasons we're going to discover. Um, and, um, uh, and yet, Paul was so positive about these Christians. Because actually, the, the status of someone who is trusting in Jesus has nothing to do with them. The church is not full of good and sorted people. Uh, the church is full of failures who know that they failed, who know that they can't live up to the standards of a holy God, and who know that God, the Son, had to take humanity to himself and live the life that we failed to live and die the death that we deserve to die so that God could see us as perfect and holy, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And so be who you are in Christ is saying you are holy because Jesus has made you holy, so live it out which is a huge encouragement to us in our struggles, in our sins, in our failures, as a church, individually as well. It's a huge encouragement that we have a standing before God that is secure, and God is calling us to live up to that high standard, and, and pleading with us to, to, to follow him, not because we're earning our way to him, but because we are already holy, precious, uh, his beloved children, heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ of the kingdom to come. Uh, we have a very high status, and so be who you are in Christ. And this passage is another call to that, and it's, there's a long way to go, um, but there's a long way for us too. Um, so hopefully that's a helpful introduction as we get back into 1 Corinthians. And this particular passage I've called, and you'll see the title there on the other side of your sheets, When Blind Conformity Destroys Gospel Unity. Uh, when blind conformity destroys gospel unity. Um, I thought it sort of had a scan to it. It sounds a bit poetic, so that's why I gave that title. Hopefully it makes some sense, that idea of just doing what everyone around you is doing, but the effect that that might have if you just do what the world around you does on the unity that God has given us in the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. And you'll see there at the top of your sheets, and we will come to the passage, um, you'll see there at the top of the sheets um, a kind of summary of the first part and the second half of, of chapter 11, where Paul is dealing with these issues in the church. And last week, um, we were looking at that issue, and I've summarised it there as chapter 11a, the first half of chapter 11. The Corinthian church is unnecessarily insensitive to culture and ends up undermining the God-given distinctives of men and women. Um, so the culture around them, we were looking at there, had um, head coverings uh, for all women, except perhaps those who were completely bashing against the trends or even prostitutes in the temple. And the, the women of the church in Corinth had realised wonderfully that there are all these freedoms in Christ, um, these amazing freedoms that show total equality between men and women and slave and master and so on. And they were trying to kind of express that in a way that pushed beyond cultural norms and actually ended up um, undermining the, the good God-given distinctives uh, that God had created between men and women. And we talked about that. And if you want to look into that more, um, you can find the sermon online and the discussion. I think the discussion was recorded in that as well. 
Um, this time, it's kind of the other way around. Uh, so rather than sort of pushing boundaries of the local culture and causing offence to the culture, this time the Corinthian church, you see there, chapter 11b, says on your sheets, is blindly conforming to culture and ends up undermining the radical inclusivity of the cross of Christ. And this time it's much more serious, to the point where Paul says even meeting together does more harm than good. Um, last week it was, look, I understand why you'd have, want all these freedoms, but actually there are good reasons to wear head coverings in that culture. You'll notice that we're not a church that um, particularly endorses that. But um, in that culture it made sense. In this time, they're just buying into the culture, and we're going to see what they buy into, and it ends up doing real damage to the point where their meetings are actually more harm than good. So that's the, the intro. Before Penny reads, she's on 10 steps, I thought we could come back to, to this and just see if anyone had any useful discussions around this issue. What are the cultural blind spots um, that churches that we're familiar with might have or be susceptible to? Um, I was asked to give an example um, to help you think through. I suppose one famous blind spot would be a sort of British imperialism that ends up thinking that um, the sort of churchianity, the Christianity of uh, the British church is the way things should be done. And so you need to go abroad and when, you, when people come to Christ you need to tell them back in the day to dress up in British suits and to sing British hymns and have British liturgy and so on and that's the right way to do it rather than seeing that actually the gospel spread across many cultures in the early church and no one culture was, was dominant. Okay, well let's dive in. So the first, uh, I divided it up into, you'll see there on your sheets, uh, first the abuse, uh, the abuse that is going on, and then the true purpose of the Lord's Supper, unabused, uh, what it's supposed to be like, and we'll, we'll see that. Then the consequence of the abuse, and then some practical advice at the end as to how to avoid that going forward. Um, and um, my aim is, I never quite know how it's going to work out. My aim is to, to kind of work my way through quite quickly. But if at any point as we work through, you've got questions, um, then that's good. Um, because that'll help to clarify for others. If you've got questions, then others have questions. Um, don't feel shy. If Ben was here still amongst us, he would be asking straight away. And we'd all be thinking, oh, I'm so glad he asked that because uh, uh, I didn't have the courage to do it. Please do have the courage. Um, so first we're going to look at uh, the abuse that is going on in the church in Corinth. Uh, so back to verse 17, in the following directives I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. How harsh can you get at writing to the church that you founded, um, telling them that they might as well not meet because actually it would be better if they didn't because they're doing so much damage. And this meeting is probably the gathering together of the house churches to share the Lord's Supper, um, together in uh, perhaps one of the larger houses in the area. Um, and um, what we discover, and we'll see it as we read back through the passage, is that the Corinthians are mimicking a cultural practice of the rich who would eat and drink while the poor looked on. Um, if you've seen programs that are a bit like Downton Abbey or Upstairs Downstairs, um, you'd have the, the wealthy aristocrats who'd be sitting in the, the long dining table and then the servants standing around waiting on their every move. Well, that's one thing in 
uh, early 20th century, 19th century culture. But back then, it wouldn't just be the servants who were standing around looking. Often it, these great meals would happen in big courtyards of these kind of palatial houses. And the, the wealthy would eat in these open courtyards when it was warm, and um, the servants would be standing around in the courtyard, but others would be looking on through the gates, and, and the wealthy seemed to enjoy that kind of spectacle, and it wasn't unusual for the villagers just to, to sit around and look. Um, and there was very much an us and them characteristic, and it seems that the Corinthians were bringing this into church. And so the very fellowship meal, the Lord's Supper, that is supposed to demonstrate full equality of everyone who's trusting in Christ because of his saving death for them, ends up, that very fellowship meal ends up being divisive and exclusive and even humiliating for some. Let's, let's read on, verse 18. In the first place, Paul says, I hear that when you come together as a church, so obviously someone in the church is, uh, one of the leaders perhaps has gone to visit Paul where he's uh, doing missionary work elsewhere, and is explaining to him what's, what's been going on in the church. Um, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. We can see they're a very divided church, full of proud people, if you've been reading the letter up until now. No doubt there have to be differences, and this is sarcasm here. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's, he's being sarcastic, that idea that the, the wealthy ones are the ones who have God's approval and the others are looking on, or, or, or perhaps arriving late, um, because those who were very wealthy didn't have to work normal jobs, um, and so could turn up uh, to the evening meal um, early and, and, and get out all their delicious food and then just expect the others to grab a snack on their way from work, if at all. So that when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The very thing they think they're doing, he's saying, no, you've undermined it such you can't even call it that. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. You're bringing your, your champagne and caviar and your beautiful uh, spread and you're showing off to your other rich friends. As a result, verse 21, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Can you imagine that going on in the church? The idea that there would be poor, hungry onlookers seeing their brothers and sisters in Christ flaunting their wealth and even having drunk a few, bit too much from the Chateau Lafitte that's there on the table that the, um, uh, that the poor people can't join in with. And then he says, verse 22, and this links into Penny's question, we'll come back to this a little bit. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you kind of actively despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Flaunting your wealth in front of the church. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So that's the nature of the abuse. It's, it's hard to even get our heads around how that could even happen. I, I think in today's culture in this country, it, it just couldn't happen. You know. Um, the, the posh public school boys like David Cameron and Boris Johnson have so dragged the name of these aristocrats through the month that, um, that there's just no way anyone would, would even think that, that that was possibly a nice thing to do. Um, but back in those days, it was totally normal. There was a huge distinction between rich and poor. And there was an idea that if you were wealthy, you deserved it, you'd earned it, or you were from a moral family, and um, you were being blessed by the gods or by God himself, and... Um, therefore, you could flaunt your wealth, you could show it off. Um, we were having a joke today, uh, 
Ed's, uh, Ed Mayhew's brother um, is uh, working in Africa and some of the churches there, he said, are prosperity gospel churches where the pastors will have um, private jets and uh, far, smart cars and so on in order to show off to the congregation that God blesses the work of those who, who serve him. Um, and perhaps in that kind of culture you could imagine anything, but, but, but not so much um, in this culture. Well, before we come back to just thinking, oh, well, they're rubbish, but we luckily don't have any of those blind spots today. Um, let's work through the principles of the Lord's Supper and then think through whether there are different kinds of abuses in our own church. So next, point two on your sheets, the true purpose of the Lord's Supper, the true purpose of the Lord's Supper. And the first is to remember, and that seems to be the main part of this next section that Paul is talking about. Verse 23 there on your sheets. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. So this is the Lord's Supper. It's the last supper, uh, the evening meal, um, before Jesus went to the cross. Um, it was the Passover meal. Uh, so they would have been, um, uh, they would have eaten uh, a lamb that had symbolically died for the sins of the people so that the Lord would pass over and forgive them their sin, which was hugely symbolic because Jesus said he was the Lamb of God who was going to take the sin of the world. So this is a hugely significant evening and is the reason that, that Christians still celebrate the Lord's Supper today. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So the main aspect of what we're doing when Christians gather together to share the Lord's Supper, we're not actually going to do that at this afternoon. I had planned, you'll see on the service sheet, it's, it's there planned. Um, but I thought for a number of different reasons, partly because most of the body um, are away, um, but there are other reasons we can talk about um, aren't here. But when, when we gather together to uh, share the Lord's Supper, um, we are remembering the cross. But it's not just... Oh yeah, I've forgotten Jesus died on the cross. Of course, we know that as Christians. Um, but we are seeing this visible word, this visible reminder, the, the broken bread. As we see the bread broken, we remember the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and his blood shed for us. And as we take and we eat, we remember. But it's not just remembering in our minds. But there's an active, what well, we're going to talk about this in a moment, there's an active nourishing and a kind of and needing to participate, to, to say, I need this, just like I need bread and, and drink to survive. So I need the body and blood of the Lord Jesus shed for me, uh, broken for me, shed for me, um, so that I can live, have eternal life in him, so that death is conquered, and so on. So it's the act of remembering. Now, there's a big debate, you'll know, if you know anything about church history and debates between uh, churches, mainly between Roman Catholic churches and Protestant churches, about how much uh, when Jesus said, this is my body, he literally meant, this is actually my flesh. And Roman Catholics believe in something called transubstantiation. They believe that the, the actual... Um, uh, bread and the wine turn into 
uh, the body and the blood of Jesus. It's as if every time um, the, the priest stands at the front and breaks the bread, he's performing the sacrifice again. Um, and so that when um, anyone takes that bread or that wine, it has a kind of magic to it because it is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, it's a very helpful one, isn't it? Because Jesus very explicitly says, Paul quoting Jesus, says, do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, do you see what he says? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup, uh, sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He doesn't say, uh, this is my blood, which was shed for you. He probably did in the course of a longer way that he said it. But he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And someone pointed out to me as I was reading uh, this week that no one believes that the wine turns into a covenantal document. No one says uh, this, this wine physically turns into um, a covenantal document. And so actually Jesus is talking about the symbolism. And this idea of the new covenant, covenant means relationship. It means a relationship made on legally binding promises. <coughs> A famous covenant that we'd all be familiar with, um, either ourselves or with friends and family, is the covenant of marriage, um, which is a promise uh, based on uh, uh, a relationship based on legally binding promises. Um, and Jesus is saying that promise that God made, that those who uh, trust in him um, would end up being his people in his place, under his blessing, knowing, knowing him perfectly for all eternity. At that promise that was going to come only through the sacrificial death of the suffering servant. This is here now, Jesus was saying. This is here now. So remember, remember. And as well as remembering, then point two there, shorter on your sheets, verse 26. Uh, proclaim. Uh, proclaim. So we've had, oh, sorry. There we are. Remember. Proclaim. Uh, and verse 26 says, for whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A proclaim means preach or share or declare. And so as we share the Lord's Supper together, as we, as we take the bread and the wine, we are reminding one another of the, the amazing thing that the Lord Jesus did for us. We are preaching to one another in our actions, um, in our dependence on uh, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so remember, proclaim, and then thirdly, um, nourish. Now you'll see I've put some extra verses there on the sheet. Um, at the bottom of your sheet on the left hand side, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, so it's just the chapter before, so this would have been fresh in the minds. Um, for us we took a big break and, and looked at Luke for a long time over the spring and summer. Um, but this is only the, the, the page before, if your Bibles were open in front of you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17, there on your sheets. Um, Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So having said it's about remembering, I don't want to undermine that this is a hugely deep spiritual experience, so much so that Paul equates it to um, the pagans who would go into their temples and eat the food sacrificed to their pagan idols, to their pagan gods. And um, they would do that as a kind of, um, well, literally as a participation in the worship of those gods. And so he was saying, be careful 
that you don't do that in that way. Um, if you happen to stumble on some meat like that and you don't even know whether or not it's been sacrificed, don't worry if you're eating it in your own kitchen, that's fine. But make sure you don't participate in that kind of worship. Um, because as you do, that sort of food is not just um, nourishing you physically, but also people are going to look on and think you're being nourished spiritually. Well, the very fact that um, this is called the Lord's Supper, even when there's no meal, other meal surrounding it, um, shows that, that the very fact that we're eating the bread and drinking the wine, Jesus expected us to feel nourished by it. Um, now, often we take just a tiny, tiny bit of bread and a tiny, tiny sip of wine or grape juice, and it doesn't really nourish us, but the, the power of that symbolism is so deep um, because we are ingesting our need for God. We are, we are being nourished spiritually um, by what he does. So it's not just remembering. It's participating in, and that language of participation is, is one of relationship, of close, intimate relationship. And so we're saying, Jesus, I need you. I need to be so close to you. I need you to come inside of me and to give me new life. Um, so there's the nourishing and participating. And then lastly, um, the true purpose of the Lord's Supper is to unite, is to unite. Do you see verse uh, 17 there, the last verse on your sheets? And 1 Corinthians 10. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So this double language of body of Christ, you get to see here. Uh, the body of Christ is the, the literal body of Jesus that was broken uh, on the cross and uh, the blood shed, um, then remembered through the symbols of the bread and the wine very powerfully as we take it to ourselves. But then also it's a symbol of the body of Christ today. And in the next chapter, chapter 12, Paul's going to be talking all about what it means to be the body of Christ in the church, with Christ as the head and all of us like body parts, needing to work together, serving one another, remembering that none of us are individuals on our own, sufficient on our own, but we need each other. And uh, the rich need the poor and uh, the... Um, uh, the sort of professors need the little children and so on and so on. We all need each other. We uh, depend on each other. And as we come together and we share the Lord's Supper, there's a, a taking from the same loaf. There's a saying that we, we, we need one another. We are part of that same body as we eat from the same loaf, as we drink from the same bottle or carton or whatever it is. So this and that is really the main issue that is that is troubling uh, the Corinthians here. That's where the abuse is coming. They are, they are dividing the body. They're splitting it up. They're creating a false hierarchy. And so there's a consequence to that. They are undermining the very reality that it doesn't matter how wealthy and important and well-educated you are, you still needed the eternal Son of God to die bleeding and naked and ashamed on that Roman cross. So you have no room for pride over the lowest slave, the least educated member of your congregation, the person with all kinds of mental health issues or, or a checkered past or whatever it is. There is no reason for pride because all of us stand before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and realise that we needed him to die for us. So when someone comes to us with a criticism, we don't need to defend ourselves because... Well, they can see just as well as us that Jesus needed to die for us. So we must be pretty evil in the sight of God in and of ourselves. 
and so we are all humbled. But instead, these Corinthians were regrading themselves and setting themselves up against each other. And it was causing some pretty nasty consequences. So let's look at that. Um, point three, the consequence of the abuse. So then, verse 27 on your sheets. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And this uh, verse, verse 29, is really the key verse of the whole passage. This, you can sort of circle it, underline it, verse 29. This is the main issue that was going on. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, and by that he doesn't mean uh, discerning the fact that Jesus' body was broken for you and his blood shed for you. He means the body as in the people, uh, the poor who've been marginalised and so on. Um, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, the church family that God has given you, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Um, that is the issue. That is the main consequence. Uh, that the, the body gets broken up um, and um, those who end up ignoring the family that God has given them, the body of Christ that God has given them, end up drinking judgment on themselves. And so, verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. And so he's saying, if you, if you realise the issue, if you realise how exclusive you're being of your brothers and sisters in Christ, um, then of course um, you wouldn't be drinking judgment on yourselves, you'd be sharing the Lord's Supper delightfully. Nevertheless, so as we, as we realise, there are times when our blind spots end up excluding others and breaking others down. Um, is this judgement of God saying, go away forever, you're now lost, you're not in Christ anymore, um, you're condemned? No, verse 32, do you see? Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now, this raises questions and fears and concerns, doesn't it? Hang on a minute, should I think that every time I'm ill, I've got a cold, or uh, I can't shake off um, a cough that I've got, or I've got back pain, or so on, whatever it is, that God is judging me? Well, actually, before I caveat it, I want us to just think, that should be a question that we ask. If we're constantly prayerfully speaking to God, and we're wondering, um, uh, what, why we're facing a particular illness. It may be, and probably is, that we're just like Christians are like anyone else. We live in a fallen world, a broken world, where illness and colds and so on go round. But it would be right, wouldn't it, to pray, Lord, please show me in my heart if there's anything that this illness is prompting me to realise a particular sin that I was unaware of until now. Uh, please expose in me um, uh, a desire to, to humble myself before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and look out for those that I might have sinned against. And we know that actually the connection between um, our own mental struggles and our physical issues is, is commonplace, is, is well recorded, isn't it? So people get stomach ulcers because they get stressed or they've got harboured bitterness or anger and, 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 and that, can, that goes on and on and on can cause physical damage over time. We know that's the case. Well, maybe the Lord in his kindness is, is giving you something. We know that if you, if you work too hard and you never take a break, 
that you'll eventually burn out. And when you go on your holiday, it will probably become your time to get all the colds um, that have been building up and that you've been holding off. Uh, we know that kind of thing happens. And maybe that would be a wake-up call. Oh yes, the Lord hasn't made me to be superhuman. He's made me to, to work six days and to rest for one day, and I need to work through how to do that. And this is a great wake-up call. Um, uh, I think there's a there, there's saying in, in, I've heard it in the secular um, kind of management uh, course, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, it just chimed, that often the illness you get throughout, throughout the year is the consequence of the overwork that you do throughout the year. Um, I'm sure it's not a direct link. Um, but, but those are things that, that actually just, from a scientific point of view, just seem normal to us. Um, but from a Christian point of view, we should approach everything in that we were looking on, on Tuesday nights at the prayer meeting. Um, uh, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. So if we're having that con constant prayer, then whether we face illness or success or um, relational challenge, we're going to be taking it to the Lord and we're going to be praying it through. And maybe it's his kind wake-up call to us. So let's not shy away from that. And indeed, in James chapter 5, um, James absolutely links um, sickness and particular sins and people needing to go and confess their sins publicly and to have the elders in the church pray for them and restore them to... Uh, faith in Christ. And so we mustn't shy away from that. We mustn't be, I think one of our cultural blind spots might be Western uh, 20th, 21st century rationalism, uh, where we take away any kind of real, genuine spiritual experience and we just explain everything by um, scientific investigation. Um, I'm not saying we should ditch the science, <laughs> absolutely not, uh, but we mustn't say that absolutely everything can be explained um, by uh, the molecules and so on. Um, we know that our minds affect our bodies and uh, we should be comfortable with that from a spiritual perspective as well. Okay. I just want us to look at that last little phrase before we move on lastly to kind of chat this through uh, and discuss it together under practical advice. That last little phrase in verse 32. So that we will not finally, not be finally condemned with the world so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that the world, which is everyone who doesn't trust in Christ, the world is everyone who doesn't trust in Christ exclusively for their salvation. So everyone who's not actively trusting in the cross of Christ for themselves, uh, that's the world. And there is no way to get to God without trusting in the saving death of, of Christ. And so those who are in that category of not trusting in the saving death of Christ will be condemned fully and finally. They will be given what they ask for. They push God out of the picture. They say, I'm going to run my life my way. I'm going to make my own way to heaven if there is one. And um, I don't need you, God. I certainly don't need Jesus to die for me. And um, so I'm going to carry on living um, the way that I think is right. And God will one day give those people what they ask for. Life without him, not just this life, but for all eternity, condemned with the world. So, he's also warning us in this verse that there are those who say they trust in Christ, but actually their actions and their hard-heartedness when confronted with issues show their actions as part of the world. But the point I want to make here is that the, 
the radically inclusive nature of the gospel. That the death of Jesus that says whether you're the lowest slave or the highest king, uh, whether you're um, uh, the richest or the poorest, um, whether you're the brightest or the thickest, um, you are all in need of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore you're all raised to the same, same level. And in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, uh, one culture or another culture, we are all one in Christ. That amazing unity is only possible, that amazing inclusivity is only possible because of the extreme exclusivity of the gospel. The exclusivity of the gospel. You see, if the only way to be saved is through the death of Christ, it humbles us. But if we refuse to be humbled and we won't trust in the saving death of Christ, then we are excluded. And so the proclaiming message of the Lord's Supper is one of huge reassurance to the body of Christ, to those who are trusting in Jesus. But it's also a proclamation of judgment on those who are not trusting in Christ. And, and so when we do share the Lord's Supper here, it's why we often say, if you are not trusting exclusively in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then please don't take this, because all you're doing is, is eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You're, you're making a mockery of the saving work of Jesus if you won't trust him exclusively. And, um, and then when we look around and we see one another sharing the Lord's Supper, we can encourage one another, say we're in the same boat here. Um, and we don't. We can look around, and, and we'll we'll see someone who we thought, you know, Arpan. He's such a, a great, lovely guy. He's so warm and friendly and kind. Um, Jesus must be so much more pleased with him than me. And we look at him, and he's th he's there. He's taking the bread. Okay. No, he needs Jesus saving bread as well. Wow, that's hugely reassuring. Do you see? The the inclusivity is dependent also on the exclusivity. The only way to be saved is through the saving death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, some practical advice and a chance for a bit of speaking the truth in love, and if we've got time, I um, think we'll, have, um, we'll, we'll sing at the end um, on this theme. Practical advice. So then, verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Now, he must mean here, all eat the Lord's Supper together. Uh, not meals, because of verse 34. Do you see verse 34? Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. Um, what he's saying is, in terms of the food that's going to nourish you, okay, if you've got these issues, and some of you can afford caviar and chasseau lafitte, and others of you can only just grab a, a snack from Sainsbury's local on your way out of work, then make sure you eat separately beforehand, um, so that uh, so that you're not having this issue of, of your wealth being splayed in front of you. Now there are other practical ways around that, I'm sure some of them are coming to mind, like the rich could buy the food and share it with everyone, that would be a great thing to do. But if there's going to be this tension of who can afford what food, or who's got the time to eat it all, um, why don't you eat separately and then come together so that the one thing you're focusing on, which is the Lord's Supper, is absolutely equal between all of you. So then, my brothers, verse 33, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And then he says, and when I come, 
I will give further instructions. And I imagine that he had some more kind of nuanced practical advice, perhaps like what I've just given um, when he was coming. But he just wanted to just wanted to sort out the particular issue. Let's, let's clear this one out. Let's take the, the fact that some of you are really posh and rich and some of you are really struggling, and let's take that out of the equation. And when you come together for the Lord's Supper, just share the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, and that's it. And make sure you're not doing it to fill your stomachs um, for your daily nourishment, but remember, come ready to experience the spiritual nourishment of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is where I want you to get involved, and we're going to kind of um, uh, speak the truth in love. Um, this is one of our little vision statements, an intimate family speaking the truth in love. Um, so taking the truth that we've learned from God's word and working out how does this apply in our lives. I'm going to say some things, but perhaps you could be thinking through what, what this means for us when we take the Lord's Supper. Um, the main application is, in all things, the church should recognise the unity of the whole body of Christ, without worldly distinctions. I probably should have written that down, but I'll say it again. In all things, the church, a church like ours, should recognise the unity of the whole body of Christ without worldly distinctions. Now, there are lots of practical ways that we, we try and do that in this church. One of the things we do when we gather as uh, small groups, as our gospel communities, we aim to pray for everyone who's in that gospel community, even if they can't make it, even if they never make it. Um, so that when we gather, we are remembering the whole body of Christ that God has given us um, and praying for them and thinking of them and realising, oh gosh, I haven't seen them for, for months, I need to go around and, and check out how they are, give them a call, and, and we pray for them as well. That's one little practical application. Here's some other possible things, and then in no particular order, um, Andy, I value your thoughts on this, any kind of possible applications. but. One thing I was thinking back to, when the church I was at before, when we started out, we had the principle of, we only have the Lord's Supper at the prayer meeting. Um, and the reason for that was, so that we didn't create a kind of them and us culture for those who um, we want to be visiting on a Sunday, um, who um, might be from all kinds of faith backgrounds, um, are just looking into things, and we don't want to sort of go around and everyone be having their bread and looking around and being like, oh, they're not, and they're not, and they're not, and they're not, and making people feel awkward. Actually, the, the gospel need not make people feel awkward in that circumstance, but that, that could be one application. Um, and one of the reasons we started to introduce the Lord's Supper in the, the normal Sunday meetings, which is totally normal for churches, so this is just a, a cultural application, it's not a right or wrong thing, was because we realised there were lots of mums in the church who were often babysitting in the prayer meetings. But then I thought, well, that's not a reason not to do it. Instead, um, others should be trying to find ways to, to help mums to, to get babysitters or offering themselves. Blokes in the church should be um, giving up their opportunity every so often so that people can come. We need to find ways to, to include everyone, include those who are on the fringe through no fault of their own, who are on the edges of church, um, because of family pressures because of um, work um, you know this has uh, implications for those who who work on a Sunday or in the evenings and often don't have a choice as to whether they can get to a meeting and how we look out for the whole body do you see verse 29 we need to eat and drink the Lord's Supper and in fact all the activities of the church discerning the body of Christ knowing who the family God has given us is 
Um, and then one last thing I thought I'd throw out there, and this might get the discussion going a bit more, is food. Um, food is a hugely important aspect of fellowship. And we know that if you, if you meet up with friends and family, it often happens around food. And food gets people talking, it deepens relationship, it helps um, cultures come together. At the same time, food can be very exclusive. Um, so those of you from different cultural backgrounds will, will often think, oh, I don't like that kind of food, or that's too posh, or you know, I don't eat hummus, or I'd much prefer a burger, or I like spicy food, or I don't like spicy food, or don't like meat. Don't like meat, there, there we are, yeah, yeah, or object to meat even. Um, so we need to be thinking these kind of things through practically. So now, let's um, put it out there um, and spend the last... Uh, five or so minutes just discussing. Where do you feel this is landing, or do you think we're getting everything perfectly right as a chair? I think it's quite unusual that we meet to eat uh, in churches, in a church context, and Antoinette, when she left, said, Don't stop meeting to eat. So sweet of her, yeah. One day. Because I think there is a lot. Yeah, this year. I can see the point that it's uh, it, it is, it's something that you really have to understand a lot of the things you raised about the differences, like cultural or otherwise. Mm. We um, it's definitely worth us continuing to uh, to serve those, like to make sure that we're including as many people. Yeah. Uh, rather than just saying, oh, it's too difficult. Let's not bother. Kind of thing. Yeah. So it's more. Like, I think it's more of an encouragement for us to be aware. <coughs> I know food is sometimes a kind of something we tease each other about, <laughs> our different tastes. In... Right, I anyway, like, for me, yeah, everything is fine. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> because we more focus on meeting each other and learning from each other rather than yeah. on food. Yes. So food is just a reason, but the purpose of gathering. Yes, it's not the purpose of gathering, but it, it fosters relationship, doesn't it? And so often I'll say to people, even if you, I, there are some people who, who decide to come after the food, and I want to say to you guys, even if you're going to eat at home, and because you don't want to make a fuss because that particular food or you eat earlier or so on, come for the food time, because it's a time of fellowship. Uh, the conversations are happening there. Um, often we're eating buffet style, so some people are finished and other people are just starting. So. The fact that you finished before we got started actually shouldn't matter because it's a real time of, of fellowship, so do come for the food time. <coughs> Any other thoughts on our blind spots or exclusivity? I think sometimes we run a, a group or a Bible <coughs> study or something and we're fixed to a time or a format that has suited maybe the current team or 
the church up to a point and then actually we have to rethink it and those of us who've done it from the start might be scared of rethinking to accommodate someone else but actually it can be a great way of growing or um, yeah, including people that we have to and you have to make that jump to to go into the unknown maybe for the sake of community and sake of Yes, yeah, absolutely. Being willing to change things, being willing to break with traditions, especially unhelpful traditions. Um, I think it's a, it's a very brief thought. I think it's a challenge to our um, any what's the phrase our um, individualism. Individualism, and actually a real reason why we we need to be an interdependent church. So, None of these nuances are going to be understood unless you're in relationship with each other. Yeah. Uh, and that's where the kind of big church, small church, the small groups really come into their own because you know your small group really intimately. You know what works the group and yeah. you can adapt it. And you can feed food in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's sensitive to everyone, not removing it completely, but also not making it the biggest thing. So mm. um, I think all of these nuances are, are really affected by the. the intimacy of the church and the more we get to know each other the more we're able to speak out about these things so i struggle with this i struggle with that and this would be really helpful and, and not just sit and stew and kind of present it or push back in a kind of unhealthy way yeah so it's a, it's a challenge to actually get to know each other even more and be able to be open about these things and work out what's helpful and spiritually and i think um as we close um, i'm going to close in prayer one message I want to get out there, and please share this with those that you meet who you feel are feeling perhaps on the edge of things, um, but also if you're one of those people who feels like you're not, you're not the dominant culture. Um, I think I fall into the dominant culture demographic, not just because I'm the pastor, but also because I'm in my mid-30s and I've got three small children, and there's a lot of people in their mid-30s with small children in this church. If you're not part of the dominant culture, then your voice... We'll, you'll feel that it's very small and you'll feel like those poor people on the outside looking into the middle while the wealthy gorge. Hopefully you don't feel as extreme as that. But um, Paul had to speak in from the outside to wake that church up to what they were doing. And what we should be as a church is those, perhaps especially those who are dominant, should be listening most to the voices of those who are on the edge of things. And so if you feel like there are ways in which you just don't quite fully feel part of things, and, you, and, and you, even if you can't quite put your finger on why, just speak up and say. If you are new, if you're new, and, and there are still things that we do that are a bit odd to you, say, because once you've been doing it for three years, you don't notice anything that's weird. It just seems normal. Um, and you might have ideas on how we could change it, you know, particular practical things. Like Paul said, just stop eating together for a moment, just come to the Lord's Supper for a bit, and then I'll come and we'll talk more. You know, you might see practical changes that need to happen. Um, so your voice, if you're feeling on the edge of things, or you're new, or you, you don't feel right at the, at the dominant centre, then your voice is actually the most important um, to put this into practice. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your words, that was relevant to... Um, a church in a culture that would seem really strange to us today um, is just as relevant uh, to us um, in our cultural setting. And we pray that you would um, take the words that we've heard in 
the scriptures today and sink them deep into our hearts and help us to be an intimate family, even as we meet over tea and coffee now and snacks and food, uh, that we would be speaking the truth in love into each other's lives. Please help us not to just go away and park that one till next week's interesting point of information, but please help us to take your word and be transformed by it, to pray through the things that are going on in our lives um, in the light of your word. And we pray we do all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us. Amen.